0: Jessica Ware is obsessed with bugs. My guest today is a leading researcher on insects, the president of the Entomological Society of America, and a curator at the American Museum of Natural History. You may not think that insects and human health go hand in hand, but as Jessica makes clear, they are very related. A lot of people care about their health, and the health of other creatures on the planet, and the health of the planet itself. But researchers like Jessica are studying another thing we should be focusing on even more, the connections between these areas. Maybe it feels like a core human instinct to demonize bugs as gross and eradicate them in every way possible, whether that's with poison or getting out your bloodthirst by stomping them whenever they creep and crawl into sight. But where did our fear of bugs really come from? Jessica explains that a lot of it is cultural, not inborn, and we can look to other cultures that have learned to live with and appreciate bugs. Jessica and I talk about whether learning to live with insects should include eating them and gene editing them so they don't transmit viruses. She also tells me about her important research into using genomic tools to track bugs in the wild to figure out why and how we've lost 50% of insect populations since 1970, according to some estimates. That's bad news because the ecosystems that make up the planet heavily depend on insects. Jessica's leading the way to better understand what's causing these declines in order to start reversing these trends to save the insects and save ourselves. I'm Matt Fuchs. This is the Making Sense of Science podcast. Hi, Jessica. Uh, Thank you for agreeing to talk for the Making Sense of Science podcast. I've been really looking forward to our discussion. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I also wanted to thank you for your contribution to an article by the writer, Susan Kramer, That will be appearing in a special magazine issue that I'm putting together with the Aspen Institute, and I'll put in a little plug for the magazine. It comes out on May 26th, featuring the work of incredible experts uh, such as yourself. That article by Susan in the magazine showcased your uh, fascinating work at the intersection of these overlapping dilemmas of climate change and infectious disease, which is the overall focus of the magazine. Uh, but that article doesn't get into your background, and I, I'd love to hear how you got into this work. It'd be great if you could share with the audience how you became an entomologist and why you became so passionate about the field.
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, Well, I mean, I certainly didn't know any entomologists growing up. I didn't know that that was a job. So it wasn't like a goal <laughs> to become an entomologist by any means. But when I went to uh, university, I was going to study marine biology and I was taking classes about things without backbones, invertebrates. Um, and it was in those classes that I learned that there were more insects on Earth than there was anything else. Um, and I had, you know, kind of got inspired to take some entomology classes. And I can remember my entomology professor saying something like if, if aliens were to land on the planet and they went to the most abundant taxon on Earth, it would probably be ants. <laughs> and I thought, my goodness, why have I spent my whole life not looking at ants? Um, and so then I kind of got interested in, in trying to figure out what an entomologist did and, and what types of jobs there were um, as entomologists. And um, in doing so, it kind of inspired me um, to think outside the box. I had really been raised by people who were artists and educators and not scientists by any means, and certainly not entomologists and certainly not people that spent, you know, months at a time in the field um, slogging through the jungle or in the Arctic. So was a real divergence, I think, from... <laughs> anything that anyone I knew did. Um, but once I started doing it, I think anytime you go anywhere and you really start paying attention to the life that surrounds you, um, one thing that's really apparent is how many insects are out there. Um, but then it also becomes really apparent how little we know about them. Um, and so there's kind of some discovery angle and that's exciting. Um, I think the idea that pretty much anywhere we go, we discover new species and we discover things that maybe haven't been documented before, that's exciting. So I think there's lots of reasons to kind of stay passionate about the topic.
0: Yeah, that, that's great. Um, and I know that you have an identical twin. And I, I, you mentioned that your, your family wasn't focused on insects or um, especially science. And I'm curious if your, uh, your identical twin developed any uh, similar interest in science or even insects. <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> that would be a hard no. Uh, no, my twin uh, really likes, or appreciates, I suppose. That's a better word. My twin really appreciates nature, um,
2: but uh, I would not say that my twin likes uh, insects per se <laughs> or or to go to the field. Although we've gone to the field together. We went to Guyana together in South America. Um, and I can remember, uh, you know, my twin's name is Cyrus. And Cyrus was looking at this insect and said, this is the most beautiful insect I've ever seen. And it kind of, you know, his had reached out slowly to, just about to touch this insect. And I had to say, wait a minute, that's a kissing bug. That's a thousand awesome bug. It, it carries chagas. Um, so there's definitely like <laughs> a different level of, of appreciation, I think. Cyrus finds all insects beautiful, pests or otherwise.
0: Yeah. Well, that's uh, that'll be a good segue to some of my questions later on about some of the uh, ways that we control pests and maybe some ways that we could be more mindful of the, the welfare of, of insects. But, um, you know, I, before we get into that, I, I have sort of a, uh, a personal interest in the next question, uh, which is about people eating insects. And I have read a lot. I think people hear a lot about insects being a great source of lean protein and yet, uh, no one really in the US uh, that I know of uh, eats insects. Maybe a few people randomly is far from, from adding up to a trend. What do you think makes uh, people so reluctant about eating uh, to eat insects? And uh, uh, what, is there anything that we could do to address people's reluctance? Or is this just sort of an inborn thing that uh, people have an aversion to?
2: Well, I definitely don't think it's an inborn thing. because when we look across humanity, um, most different cultures um, outside of North America um, eat insects. So pretty much any country that you go to, there's some form of insects on the menu. Um, So I think it's actually, we're the ones that are kind of unusual in the United States and Canada um, and parts of Europe for for maybe being more averse uh, to eating insects. I think the reasons are multiple. I mean, one is that we... We unfortunately, um, there's, you know, a very small percentage of insects. There's a million and a half described species of insects. Very, very few of those, less than 2% are pests. But we focus on the pests. And so we tend to think of insects, um, when we think of them, uh, often as things like, uh, mosquitoes that vector disease or cockroaches. It might be in, you know, a restaurant that we like to go to. So we think of the, of these insects and those of course are not the insects that people are suggesting that we put on the menu. <laughs> so there's that kind of fallacy that maybe people are thinking of of eating pests, insects, which is not great. Horror movies don't help because of course there's lots of horrible, <laughs> you know, cinema that kind of uh, has, you know, maggots and things like this that, that they suggest that people are eating, which is not what we're eating, right? People who are uh, suggesting that entomophagy would be, uh, you know, a good source of protein for the future are suggesting sustainable crickets and and mealworms and things like this that actually look kind of cute, I think, and very edible, I would argue. But I think there's also kind of a sociology component and an anthropology component where, um, you know, for a long time, people have uh, suggested uh, that, you know, there's the, the history of colonialism has kind of shaped how we view eating insects, where we went to places um, from, from Europe, people went to places where indigenous people were eating insects and there was an, an us versus them kind of mentality that really kind of solidified that eating insects was something that was other um, rather than sexually innate, that, that all humans um, have, have evolved over long periods of time to do. So I think that there's a lot of mind shift that has to happen and there are ways to do that. I mean, not everybody has to sit down and eat an insect with the legs and eyes and antennae and still attached. There's, you know, cricket powder and there's flour uh, where the insects are kind of ground up in a way that you wouldn't actually know that there were insects in there um, to begin with, you know, granola bars and, and cookies and things like that where you really would say like insect light like you wouldn't know that there are insects in there unless i told you um and that might be a more palatable way for people to enjoy them i suppose
0: yeah i see that there being potential for that as a gateway i i personally am always a little disappointed when um not always there's rare opportunities but if i go to a restaurant there actually are sometimes insects on the menu Uh, But it's they're covered in chocolate or they're, you know, they're uh, dressed up in various spices that basically all you're going to do is taste the spices or the chocolate. And I feel kind of robbed because I want the experience of like knowing what the insect actually tastes like. Uh, so hopefully we can get to that point. And if it's, if it is to be part of a healthy diet, then, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm <laughs> eating this for the lean protein and you're putting chocolate all over it. That's kind of, uh, ruining my, my goal in a way.
2: It's a really good aspect too, for feed, for animal feed. I mean, that's one avenue uh, that people uh, often think of entomophagy and we think of just us eating um, insects, but actually, this would be a really, um, you know, there's m- production that's taking place in the United States right now um, to try and grow, um, you know, insect production for food for cattle and and for for animals, and I think that will be kind of transformative in terms of our land use. Um, so there's a lot of benefits that go just beyond uh, you or I necessarily having a better microbiome.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I agree. That that sounds like it, it has huge potential. Um, I wanted to stick with kind of the line of questions of maybe everyday concerns or um, you know challenges that people have related to insects and ask you about mosquitoes in people's backyards and the instinct to just you know apply the hammer to the nail and, and use pesticides to wipe out um, bugs that are being annoying to people? Is there, uh, what, what are some better solutions than pesticides, uh, for people who are, you know, want to actually use their backyard in, in the nice weather months, but they're getting swarmed by mosquitoes?
2: Well, I mean, one answer, uh, is to reduce the amount of standing water that's in your backyard. So often people have, you know, um, the extra pots from the tomatoes that you bought at the store to put into your garden that you leave laying around or a shallow bird bath that collects water um, and mosquitoes can breed in that shallow water um, and so you may actually be providing habitat. Um, You know, mosquitoes have freshwater water, larvae. Uh, females lay their eggs in fresh water and they need fresh water to develop. But that fresh water might be just in a bit of a tire or a bit of a pot or a bowl or a cup that's left outside. So, you know, making sure that you don't have standing water is one way that you can reduce the number of mosquitoes in your backyard. The alternative that I would suggest, though, is actually to put more water in your backyard and actually have a pond feature. So mm-hmm. if you have a pond feature, what you often attract are dragonflies. And dragonflies and damselflies are excellent predators of mosquitoes. So, both in the juvenile stage, so they also have freshwater nymphs that develop in water in fresh water. Um, they will eat mosquito nymphs. They will eat mosquito larvae. Um, but then, as adults, they also prey on mosquitoes and and also as an aside, black flies, horse flies, you name it. Um, they're they're really voracious predators. So, I think that you know, doing things that would encourage a habitat that supports predators like mis- like dragonflies. Um, that, that only will benefit you in terms of getting rid of the pests that you you might dislike to have around your backyard. So it's much more popular, I think, in parts of Europe, certainly in England, um, to have backwar- backyard features um, for dragonflies, um, because dragonflies do such a good job at controlling mosquitoes. Um, and so that's something that, that one can consider. There's a really a very big difference, though, between these types of pond features and the kind of shallow standing water that we would definitely—if you—if all you have is shallow standing water—definitely dump it out.
0: <laughs> but if, okay, you got to go all the way. Go go for that pond.
2: Go deep, or you know, like you have to have deep deep water that's going to be um, deep enough that's going to support uh, you know a community, which would include things like damselflies and, and dragonflies.
0: Is that throughout the U.S. that if if you have a pool of of a, a deep pool of water, pond of water in your in your property that it will attract dragonflies or is that only in some parts of the us
2: well actually dragonflies and damselflies are really abundant across the united states so pretty much anywhere that you are whether you're in the desert of arizona um or in urban uh, manhattan if you have water of a certain depth you will attract dragonflies and damselflies even in the urban part of new jersey where i live um we have 188 species uh, (laughs) that are in our state alone um There's definitely, uh, you know, if you, if you build it, they will come.
0: Okay. All right. I like that. Um, and what are maybe like two or three of the best backyard plantings to support insects for a healthier ecosystem?
2: Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, one, one thing that many would say is we are overly reliant on, um, green lawns. (laughs) So having pristine Perfect lawns uh, is a symbol of stature, uh, and that dates back to, you know, historical times when people who didn't have to use their land for agriculture were considered to be, you know, wealthy and, and prestige. Uh, was associated mm-hmm. with that. Um, and in the colonies here in the United States, you know, that that kind of those extreme examples of, of how lawns, uh, you know, represented a certain um, type of wealth. Uh, so, we love lawns, right? Humans love having these green manicured lawns and that not that doesn't necessarily help insects. So one very easy thing you could do is kind of lessen your reliance on having a perfectly green lawn without dandelions, without clovers, because all of those tiny things which we might consider to be weeds or blemishes on a perfectly green lawn, that's actually great food and habitat. Having a variety of of plants is is key. Monoculture mm-hmm. is is Less likely to support a rich and spe- you know a species-rich habitat. So, um, if you want to have a variety of insects, and that means all different uh, levels of the food web, so um, from things that are prey items, things that are predators, um, we call those trophic levels. If you want to have a variety of trophic levels, a really active community, you need to have a variety of habitats. You need to have what we call heterogeneity, or a mixture of different kinds of plants, different heights. Um, grasses and flowering plants, um, you need to have shade, you need to have bits of wood um, for decomposers. Um, so you need to have a variety. So th- I wouldn't necessarily say that there's one plant in particular that you should go for, because maybe you love coneflowers, maybe you love sunflowers, maybe maybe there's certain flowers that you love. Plant what you love, but just don't plant one kind, you know, plant a variety of things, um, and you'll bring a variety of insects.
0: Okay. I'm I'm looking out at my my flat green lawn and I'm thinking about I I got some work to do to uh be be nicer to the uh, the the insects and um you know maybe these perfect green lawns that have become sort of typical are one of the drivers uh, maybe I I think there are a few drivers of the declines in insect populations that we've seen since the 1970s uh, could you talk about that phenomenon and wh- what you see as the fundamental drivers of those declines?
2: Sure. Um, so, I mean, we are facing uh, a period where the we normally have a background rate of extinction. You know, species, uh, as all life dies, you know, all species eventually go extinct. But the length of time that a species exists on the planet varies. Um, so there is this kind of background rate of extinction that we have witnessed uh, through the fossil record for, for millions of years. But the rate of extinction is now a thousand times higher um, than the background rate of extinction. And part of that has to do with um, land use change, global warming, um, intensified uh, agriculture, um, pesticide use. And a lot of that pesticide use isn't necessarily agricultural pesticide use, It's it's the average person spraying things on our lawn to make a perfect lawn or spraying things in our garden so that we don't have the weeds that our neighbor our neighbors might be, you know, complaining about on the neighborhood watch. Um, there's, there's a lot of factors uh, that kind of act together um, to put pressure in a negative way on insect populations. So it's not that there's necessarily one main driver, um, but all of these drivers together are resulting in a general loss of specialists, a general um, kind of decline of terrestrial insects. We see variation across habitats we see variation across kinds of insects in terms of their response to climate change, in terms of their response to global warming and land use. Some insects really like the changes that we've made to, to land and others really um, can't survive. So there's not one um, solution probably uh, for this problem because there are so many different kinds of insects and each one has their own unique um, kind of niche space, their own unique habitat that um, that uh, that they're adapted to. So. It's a very complicated problem. Um, one thing that's really tricky is that we don't have a lot of data for most of the species. So we've we've recently seen studies um, that have been published, certainly in the last five years, talking about changes in biomass. There was a landmark study that was done in Germany that kind of looked at the total biomass of insects over a multi-year period. Um, but each of these studies that have come out have been kind of short vignettes, these little snapshots about a particular region, particular point in time. But in general, across the majority of insects that are, that exist, uh, we know very little about what their population sizes are. We know very little about their total geographic range and if their ranges have shipped. We've done a lot of agricultural land use changes, um, certainly in North America, um, over the last four hundred years, because we weren't collecting data <laughs> on what our insects were over that four hundred year time, it's really hard to know um, uh, the responses that we're seeing. We might just be at the tail end of a very, very big shift um, in insect population numbers um, and and ranges.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds like clearly there are many effects um, resulting from climate change on insects and. Um, one of the ones that this this magazine issue with Aspen is focusing on is the way that climate change is affecting vector-borne diseases that uh, can be carried by insects. So, uh, can you can you talk about that as well, and sort of like some of these land use changes, and um, you know, people being in places that they weren't uh, before, and uh, combined maybe with you know, mosquitoes and other insects going into other areas of the world that they haven't been in in the past in response to these warming temperatures. Sure. I mean, well, I mean, I guess there's
2: multiple things to address there. I mean, one thing certainly is transoceanic transoceanic commerce has basically allowed us to move accidentally, um, most often accidentally, move insects around. So we are very good at moving things around, and insects are very good at hitchhiking. Onto shipments that we move around, and so what that means is that we've had a, the introduction of um, of species to areas where they didn't exist and where they were able to thrive in the absence, often, of of natural predators. Um, and what that can lead to is they can lead to you know new mosquitoes being in an area uh, that are potential vectors of illnesses, which can uh, increase the number of potential illnesses um, that could be vectored by insects uh, that can cause humans to be sick in an area. Um, but then, as you you know, as as we know insects respond to climate change so we also see that insects naturally can move into new areas um, as weather gets good as the habitat uh, becomes more suitable for an insect they can expand their range into an area just as we we can imagine insects contracting their range and actually going extinct from an area so too can insects move into an area and inhabit areas um where they didn't used to exist Um, and that can bring potential vectors for for disease um as we see you know more extreme weather events and flooding, um, often that can lead to massive swarms of, of mosquitoes and, and, and kind of uh, huge emergences of flies. Um, many of these flies can vector illness. Um, we can see rises in, in certain populations of, of mammals, which can lead to ticks and tick-borne illnesses increasing. Um, and then certainly across the world, what we notice is that as we have this kind of never-ending quest for, I suppose, Wealth at the expense of the environment. You know, we're we're uh, you know exacerbating deforestation and and mining and what have you. And in doing so, humans are becoming more frequently in contact with animals that they didn't usually um, become in frequent contact with, and that increases our risk of exposure to illnesses that some of these animals might be carrying um, that then can jump to humans. So there's a lot of I think disease management and vector. Um, illness management that is really intimately tied uh, to the problem of climate change. Um, whether that's weather, whether that's um, the the activities that humans um, are undertaking that are kind of exacerbating climate change, they also kind of exacerbate the movement of species um, around and our exposure to to illness.
0: Yeah, uh, that was a great explanation. There's a lot. To unpack there, that was a very uh, lucid explanation of uh, the, the all of these factors that are, are going into this problem. You've mentioned a couple of times the need for more data. Uh, so, anybody, you've been, I, I would say, uh, somewhat modest in not talking about your your own great work uh, that you're doing in in this area. Um, Could could you tell me about your exciting work with genome sequencing at the American Museum for Natural History and your use of DNA methods to monitor freshwater habitats? How can technology, particularly AI and molecular methods, help scientists with efforts to trap, count, and monitor insects?
2: Well, one of the things I think that has been a challenge traditionally is that there's not enough uh, entomologists out there, <laughs> there's not enough taxonomists out there. Um, and so there's a huge number of actual insect individuals on the planet, 10 quintillion insects or something like that on the planet at any one time. There's just not enough of us to monitor them. Um, and so we we were kind of stymied by um, just a lack of human power uh, to catalog, to document, to be out there sitting at the water, you know, counting species and, and, and figuring out uh, which taxa were found where. So we have new tools um, that we can use to really kind of speed up or facilitate this work. Um, genomics and genetics are great tools because they allow us to very quickly um, identify species. We can identify species A taxonomists can sit, like I do, often at a microscope and look at the diagnostic characters for taxa. Um, but we can also use barcoding. We can use, you know, sequence um, fragments of DNA that have, um, enough variation. They're almost like a barcode on a soup can, which is why they call it barcoding. So when you you go, you know, go to buy a soup can and it's, the cashier swipes it over the, the, the laser at the cashier till um, the computer knows that you've bought Campbell's chicken noodle soup or something like that because of the barcode that's on there. Well, we have a very variable section of DNA that is species specific, um, and many of us use this to tr- kind of quickly identify the taxa that we have. So, you know, DNA barcoding um, is a really great tool to kind of speed up our efforts to quickly see what's present, um, especially for aquatic insects and and things where we have nymphs that sometimes can be really challenging to identify for things like flies and what have you. Um, we can also use digitization. So um, we have... Uh, a lot of um, accessibility issues, not everybody has access to green space, not everybody has access to museum collections. Um, And so by digitizing our collections and and using um, AI to automatically extract features, we've done this for Dragonfly Wings, for example, um, along with Will Kuhn, um, uh, who's at Discover Life America, um, we developed this software that basically automatically extracts information about dragonfly wings um, from from scans that we do of wings, this allows us to quickly gather information about the morphology, about the species that we have in an area. Um, There's even tools now that people use like iNaturalist, which allows you to just kind of walk through a forest and um, quickly identify by snapping a photo with your phone uh, what species are present. Any of these tools, whether they're genomic, um, like the genomic work that we do trying to sequence all of the dragonflies, uh, we have 64, 6,500 species of dragonflies um, globally. And along with my colleagues, um, Seth Bybee, John Abbott, we have a grant um, where we're trying to sequence all of them, as many of those as we we can. Once we have these data, we have kind of a reference of what species exist. Um, We have these baseline data, so we know where we're starting from. Once we have these data, once we have you know, genetic and genomic resources, once we have digital um, kind of scans and we know the tax and where they're found, um, we can start making predictions and we can start assessing. We can start seeing whether or not we see changes um, and whether or not impacts of particular phenomena or environmental catastrophes, whether or not they have an impact on the species that are present in an area. So I think for most of the insects that are out there, we don't have a comprehensive genetic, genomic, you know, geographical database. We don't have a lot of things that are digitized. Um, most of the records that we have about insect decline, for example, are really from the global north, um, whereas the majority of the biodiversity on the planet is actually in the global south. And unfortunately, because of the way that the history of science has progressed, we have a lot of capacity um, uh holes or gaps in the global south and so we need to really work to in- to you know support our colleagues um who are most impacted probably by climate change i would add um in the global south so that they can document and work uh, on their research uh, on the taxa in their in their own backyards
0: yeah no that's exciting work i I'm, I'm, I'm sort of still wrapping my mind around the 10 quintillion insects figure that you gave uh that's that's amazing and sounds like there's a lot of work to do to catalog all these different species and sort of extrapolate the number of, uh, of uh, uh, insects, I guess, in, in each of those uh, species uh, or subspecies. But um, it sounds like technology is is playing an important role in uh, making these uh, data tracking mechanisms easier, more accurate and um I, I wanted to also ask about another area of research that there was recently some news about. There's a study that came out on advances in gene-editing insects, and um, I, I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that. People have you know, some different opinions about the viability or the usefulness of quote unquote gene drives. Um, but one of the authors for this study was quoted in the media saying that we may be able to enable genome editing in almost all of the more than 1.5 million species of insects opening up a future in which we can fully utilize the amazing biological functions of insects. Is this line of research promising or concerning to you?
2: Well, um, I suppose as a as a as an entomologist and as someone who really values biodiversity one thing that I would say is that um uh you know there's a lot of there are a lot of mysteries there are a lot of things that we don't know about insects um I worry that we are always we view insects as their in terms of their value to us <laughs> rather than as just other members of our ecosystem um and I worry that by trying to, to make them into even more of a commodity, by trying to turn them into something that we can use. Um, I don't know that that necessarily gives them, more, that doesn't give me a sense that they're more valuable. <laughs> if we've right. edited them, to we'll be able to use them more efficiently. Um, I think that we, we really um, underestimate the value of insects in general. They already do um, quite a lot for society, for humanity, for the ecosystems that we inhabit. Um, and I don't know that we need, we quote unquote, need them to do more for us. You know, $518 billion worth of pollinator services. They're excellent decomposers. They shape the ecosystem as, as we know it. Um, I think that they've been around for a lot longer than we have, 400 million years. Um, it seems like, um, it seems like a risky prospect, to be honest, to try and, you um, to try and modify insects, especially when we, I mean, evolution is naturally occurring. Um, there's always mutations that are occurring. There's, they're doing their own sort of, you know, gene uh, variation uh, that occurs from generation to generation. Um, I don't know that we necessarily need to to hasten to hasten um, changes to insects. I think that a good investment would be to study them, to preserve the habitat that they that they need to survive. Um, and to really change our our point of view uh, about what the roles of insects are, um, rather than them being something for us to use, <laughs> maybe they are they are just to exist as members of of,
0: of Earth's ecosystems. Yeah, I, I, that that's a very responsive to um, that that quote by that that author, and he's, he is talking about utilizing the the functions of insects. Um, and I'm with you right there on, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of risk in going, going into the genome and playing around with it. Um, just a, a little bit of devil's advocate, you know, in keeping in mind these increasing interactions with insects that might be carrying vector-borne illnesses, I guess one of the potential applications of gene editing could be to make them less hospitable hosts to some of these vector-borne illnesses? Do you see uh, any, again, I'm totally with you on the, um, everything they're doing for our ecosystems. They're already doing a lot for us, but maybe is gene editing a potential uh, technology to ensure that if we're having, or help ensure if we're having more of these interactions, they're not going to be um, uh, giving us these uh, vector-borne illnesses?
2: Well, yes, I mean, definitely, I think that um, when it comes to, to I mean, humans have already done this, we've already uh, kind of manipulated mosquitoes and, and other, um, you know, vectors of malaria, dengue, yellow fever, chikungunya, um, and, you know, releasing sterile males. I mean, we, we have modified uh, the way that insects interact in their natural environment um, to try and benefit uh, humans and prevent uh, the spread of human disease. And we are in this ever- um, existing perhaps battle <laughs> you know between um, preventing uh, uh, loss of food security because we compete for the same resources which is our crops <laughs> and mm-hmm. prevent um, you know vector-borne illnesses from from causing death uh, and we, we have a lot of um, tools available to us. Um, I think that when it comes to uh, you know when it comes to Vector-borne illnesses. Many of the people who are uh, impacted the most, uh, who are impacted the most by climate change, um, are really desperate for um, for solutions. And um, if the, if gene editing did allow, for example, um, you know protozoans uh, to be less likely to be transmitted by by the Aedes aegypti or what have you, um, then there is definitely a benefit to that. I think the risk comes um, when we start thinking about this more broadly across 1.5 million species of insects when we start thinking about oh we should also modify you know grasshoppers and crickets and maybe we could make cockroaches uh, modify you know I think that um, we need to be careful uh, about where we put our money and it's not necessarily because I think that gene editing is is dangerous necessarily because I mean as someone who studies genetics and genomics I mean um, I can certainly see the value of of understanding, have, have had a good understanding of of the genome of, of these insects, um, but it's just more about what we choose to spend our money on. And I think that if mm. we mm-hmm. to spend money in biodiversity, in in museums and natural history collections, in in monitoring, and in investing in communities in the global south where uh, the majority of the biodiversity on earth is, if we chose to spend our money um, in those areas, I think we actually and we chose to to make decisions that would reduce. Uh, the impacts of of climate change and and global warming. we would similar we would probably find some similar benefits <laughs> as we would if we invested in in genetically modifying a bunch of, of insects. Um, so I just think that we we can make choices on on what we choose to spend our money on. and some choices have um a, you know, definitely I could see the you know lessening of, of malaria is a positive impact, but that that's really focusing uh, the impact on a very, very narrow sector. I think investing in communities, investing in South America and parts of Africa, investing in biodiversity collections and natural history museums—that has really broad-reaching effects um, that would probably impact many aspects, not just vector-borne illness.
0: Yeah, very well said, and and fascinating answer. Uh, I know I know there were only uh, I guess a couple minutes left of time to talk, so. I wanted to just briefly open it up. And um, is, is there any other work that we didn't get a chance to talk about yet that you're excited about with the American Museum of Natural History or the um, Entomological Society of America?
2: Ah, uh, thank you for asking. Well, I would say at the American Museum um, of Natural History, like like a lot of museums, we're really looking at what we are. We are a treasure trove. We are a resource. Um, often people find... Um, it interesting that, you know, we are advocating for collecting, we're advocating for, for um, having, uh, for using our collections, but actually they're all beautiful snapshots in time. Um, so we have, you know, uh, dragonflies that were collected in 1920, in 1909, and that tells us something about what the habitat was like for this dragonfly to be able to survive there in this particular region, uh, which is written down on the card where the dragonfly uh, is, 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 is health. And that tells us something, that all of these data can can help us in our understanding of how communities, how populations have changed over time. Um, We are able to get, you know, good DNA, um, genetic and genomic information from our museum collections. Um, So we're able to really use collections in ways that we haven't before. Um, and so I think that this is a really exciting time to turn to natural history museums, not necessarily because they tell us something about the past, but because what they tell us about the past really helps us inform the future. It can really help us shape and make predictions about responses of animals to climate change. Um, and certainly for the Anthropological Society of America, I mean, we're the largest insect organization in the world and and our goal is ultimately, you know, food security um, and uh, you know, decreasing vector-borne illnesses. But the third kind of main pillar is is maintaining um, and fostering biodiversity. So I think when we think about insect decline and when we think about biodiversity loss, what we're talking about, since the majority of life on Earth are insects, is we're talking about something that is fundamentally an issue that is at the forefront of what the Anthropological Society of America um, should be and is focusing on. So I think that hopefully with, you know, 7,500 members uh, kind of galvanized to work together, um, we can probably come up with some good solutions. Um, You know, insects, uh, as I mentioned, they've been around for a lot longer than we have. And we really have... um, Just only started to scratch the surface of understanding very much about the majority of these taxa. So it really, I think, this is a good time to go out in your backyard, look at the insects that you have out there, uh, go to your natural history museums, look at the insects that they have there, um, and really kind of change our perspective. Um, So maybe we look at insects and we feel delight uh, and not aversion.
0: Well, I know that I am very motivated to start my my dragonfly pond. I'm going to look in a. How to do that and uh, be be the exception to the rule. Hopefully, set the trend in, in my neighborhood for not just having a boring uh, flat green lawn. And uh, I'm also motivated to uh, get back into eating insects. I don't care what my friends and family make fun of me. I'm, uh, uh, it's another trend that I'll try to try to try to start. Uh, Jessica, I'm very grateful for this conversation and the fascinating and important work that you're doing. And uh, I wish you all the best with it. I'm very excited to to feature feature you on this podcast and in in the magazine issue that's going to be coming out later this month. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and work with me for the Leaps.org podcast.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the chance to chat.
0: Thanks for listening to the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impact on our rapidly changing world, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, please visit our online magazine at leaps.org, where you can read in-depth articles examining health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Enjoy the leaps.org platform, and I hope you take care. Until next time.